I want to tell you a story. A story about a man called Aliyev. Haydar Aliyev, president of the Republic of Azerbaijan, once part of the Soviet Union. Because, uh, and I'm taking a flyer on this one, I'm guessing you don't know a whole lot about him. But he is crucial to our story. Now, Haydar Aliyev certainly wasn't born to power. His dad was just a railway man, a man who knew about hard work, who knew about grease and oil. But as a kid, Haydar, he wasn't into trains. Shakespeare was more his thing. And Shakespeare has a lot to say about leaders, ruthless leaders. Haydar first learned to be ruthless when he was just a teen. In World War II, he commanded a division that executed army deserters. And that ruthlessness, it would never leave him. Later, he ran the KGB in Azerbaijan. And in the KGB, there's only one thing that matters more than ruthlessness. Loyalty. In time, the head honchos in the Kremlin made him head honcho in Azerbaijan. He cracked down on crime, smashed the mafia ruthlessly, and he remained loyal, very loyal. One time, Soviet President Leonid Brezhnev was due to visit. Haydar built him an entire palace. Brezhnev stayed for just two nights. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Haydar Aliyev became Baba, grandfather, president of an independent Azerbaijan. And word has it, Baba demanded complete loyalty. His portrait was everywhere. Huge rallies were held in his honor. Three entire museums marked Baba's achievements. Get this, a star was named after him, and a mountain. But still, he had a reputation for being ruthless. Ruthless with his opponents. Ruthless with anyone who dared to cross Baba. So why is this so important? Well, because Victor's big deal, his plan to buy up Azerbaijan's entire oil industry, it all rests on getting into bed with Baba. This is the Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast produced by Blanchard House. I'm Joe Nocera.
Chapter 5 In Bed with Baba Okay, remember that Christmas party at Victor's Place in Aspen? How could you forget? The alligator skin couches, the ivory collection, the Chateau Petrus, Natalie Cole, yada, yada, yada. The party was a piece of theater to entice investors to go in on Victor's grand plan, his crowning glory. But thing is, Victor had already been laying the groundwork for months. He's been hard at it. Doing what, Peter? Buying vouchers, Joe. That's right. Buying vouchers. He did it once before, remember? Back in Prague. Those vouchers were supposed to give people a stake in the new Czechoslovakia. Except it didn't quite work out that way. But it did work out for Victor, who was laughing all the way to the bank. His Swiss bank. This time, Victor's pulling the voucher trick on the streets of Baku. Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. Same playbook, but the stakes are much, much bigger. Now, to be completely honest, Azerbaijan doesn't have an awful lot to offer your average big-shot investor. With one very notable exception... There's only one thing worth buying in Azerbaijan, and that's an oil company. Roger Thomas was Britain's ambassador there. You stick your finger in the ground around Baku, your oil comes out. And Victor wants all that oil, every last drop. He wants to buy the country's giant oil company, Sokar, the state oil company of Azerbaijan Republic. But that will take a lot of vouchers. And it'll take a lot of cash to buy those vouchers. But Victor's got cash. And he's got a team there. A team of Russians. They fan out across Baku. Every street, every tram stop, every railway station, every bus station. Word gets out. A rich guy's buying vouchers with cold, hard cash people were getting off the trains with these bits of paper in their hands. They knew that they could get some dollars. Peter, how did this voucher privatization scheme work in Azerbaijan? Was it modeled on the Czech program? It was very similar. And you got to remember, all these former Soviet republics were doing the exact same thing, including Russia. Oh, right. That's how some of the oligarchs got rich, through vouchers. Yeah, exactly. And in Azerbaijan, each Azeri citizen got a booklet for free. So selling the vouchers to Victor was like getting free money. I mean, for them, what's not to like? And so if you collected enough vouchers, you could then swap them for a stake in an old Azeri state-owned company. That's right. And so, I mean, what kind of companies could you buy with these vouchers? Well, the Azeri government had already begun privatizing small businesses, and the plan was to expand the program to include the handful of really big enterprises that might attract foreign investors and Western capital. And, of course, nothing attracts foreign investors like oil or a state-run oil company like Sokar. Yes, that's right. But the timetable, let's just say it was a little hazy. 
And it was all up to the president, to Aliyev, who had the sole power to decide when and whether to privatize Sokar. But Victor somehow seemed sure it was going to happen, and it was going to happen soon. So Victor's team uh, is busy hitting the streets of Baku. Yeah. And within just a few weeks, they've burned through $15 million. Which, I got to say, doesn't seem like a whole lot of money to buy an oil company. It's not. And before long, that's going to turn out to be small change. Because for this to work, Victor's going to need a whole lot more money to buy a whole lot more vouchers. I mean, if you're going to buy the entire oil industry, it is not going to be cheap, even in Azerbaijan. Victor seems determined, obsessed even, like a young lover. From the very first moment, he set eyes on the object of his desire. Victor knew he just had to seduce her. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess called Sokar. The princess had been put to sleep for a hundred years, cursed by an evil witch. The princess was sleeping high in the tower of an old castle in the middle of a thick forest. The curse could only be lifted by the kiss of her true love. Then one day, a tall, handsome prince with a mop of curly ginger hair. Don't forget that sensational smile. Peter, you ruined it. All right, okay, enough of the fairy tale. Anyway, Sokar. It's 1997. Azerbaijan is a small country, about the size of Maine. But Sokar is a very big deal. Sokar and the oil were the lifeblood of Azerbaijan. That's what the country lived off. Sokar was the crown jewel, really the only proper asset that the Azeri government had. Colin Kamen worked for Victor back in those heady days. This is the golden goose. Without the oil, where would Azerbaijan be? Great question. The moment you touch down, you can smell it. Right, Mr. Ambassador? Yes, in your, in your nostrils. And you can see evidence of it everywhere. Those strange contraptions, mile after mile after mile of pump jacks, or as they call them in the oil business, Nodding donkeys. I've no idea how many people, tens of thousands of people, all working on these nodding donkeys, all pumping little bits of oil. The scale of this thing is awe-inspiring. Vast tracts of land were being pumped. A mass of pipes and tanks and pumps. If it weren't so damn dirty, you might think the extraction of oil was a thing of beauty. The transformation of something crude and sticky, fetched up from the bowels of the earth and turned into something precious, something coveted, the bringer of wealth, the bringer of war, the creator of worlds, the destroyer of worlds. Liquid gold. So anyway, Victor's in love. Maybe he's finally found the love of his life, his sleeping beauty. And Victor wants to be the one that awakens her. Because unlike the real sleeping beauty, 
This one has aged while she's been asleep. Big time. In the 1900s, Baku was the Saudi Arabia of its day. Its oil industry was state-of-the-art. But the old gal has not aged very well. All those pipes and tanks and pumps, they just don't work like they used to. Peter, not a word. And as for the nodding donkeys, well, they're on their last legs, heading straight to the junk pile. And it's those rusting pipes where Victor sees dollar signs. You see, Azerbaijan is a poor country, but it's sitting on enormous wealth. It's in the ground and offshore in the Caspian Sea, just waiting to be tapped. Get a hold of Sokar, replace those rusting pipes, leaking tanks, and dodgy pumps, introduce a little Western know-how, and suddenly you've got a license to print money. Can you see now why that Christmas party was so important? Can you see why Victor needed high-rolling investors? The $15 million he had spent in just a few weeks was a drop in the bucket compared to what he needed. The big party in Aspen, that was an investment. An investment that had lured the first wave of investors. Investors smitten with Victor. Investors like Aaron Fleck. After the party, we talked almost every day. He confided in me. I think he considered me like his father. We were very close. I can't tell you how many luncheons and dinners I had with him. So Aaron wanted in. But he didn't much fancy a trip to Azerbaijan, so he sent his daughter, Kathy, to get the lay of the land. To see for herself all those rusted pipes and tanks and pumps. So over Kathy went, and she got the full VIP treatment. We were wined and dined, and we had bodyguards everywhere we went. But I'm not totally sure Kathy was the best qualified person for the job. I went over, and I'm looking at all these documents, and basically said to my father, I couldn't tell you if this is a good deal or not. I have no idea about oil and gas. Yeah, maybe an expert in oil and gas might have been better. Anyway... At the conclusion of that trip, I said, you know, in my gut, this looks like it could be a great deal. In terms of actual industry knowledge, I couldn't tell you. Well, that's an honest answer. But her dad went in anyway, to the tune of $4 million. Chump change, really. But Aaron's real value wasn't so much his money as it was his connections. His connections to Wall Street. And Victor knew that. Before long, Aaron roped in other investors, seriously big investors. Investors like Leon Cooperman, billionaire Lee Cooperman. Aaron Fleck called me up saying he's very excited about this investment. Give us the skinny on Lee Cooperman, Peter. He is a colorful character. He was born in the South Bronx, the son of Polish immigrants. His father was a plumber. And Lee was the first in his family to earn a college degree and ended up becoming a big star at Goldman Sachs. 
and then he set out on his own and founded Omega Advisors. That's a big-time hedge fund, right? Yes. And at the time Victor and Aaron approached him, he was managing around $4 billion of other people's money. Talk about self-made. Talk about the American dream. My goodness. Um, What else about him, Peter? He's smart. He's shrewd. He had a reputation as one of Wall Street's savviest investors. Oh, and he had a temper, too. You would not want to get on the wrong side of Lee Cooperman. But Cooperman was all smiles once he heard Victor's pitch. And he loved what he heard. They had a billion barrels of oil in the Caspian Sea. If they privatized SOCAR, we would own oil for pennies a barrel that we'd be selling for tens of dollars a barrel. I'm not sure if he said 100 to 1 deal, you know, some huge profit. It was a very attractive number. In fact, for Lee Cooperman, it was an irresistible number. We wound up putting in much more money than Victor originally solicited. Lee was in for $125 million. And today's money... That's nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. I don't risk that kind of money unless I feel, uh, you know, I'm going to win and be right. So, let's recap. Victor ropes in Aaron. Aaron ropes in Lee's Omega outfit. But there's still not enough cash. So, Omega, it ropes in insurance giant AIG for 15 mil. Followed by Columbia University another 15 mil. Then he ropes in a bunch of his fellow Wall Street big shots, 25 mil. And like all smart investors, they did their due diligence. It was extremely comprehensive. I say at least two or three inch thick document. There was nothing negative about him. So everything checked out. You know, we we weren't sloppy in our due diligence. So yes, they did their due diligence. Well, as much due diligence as you can do in a month before the internet. In next to no time, Lee Cooperman's Omega Fund had raised a cool $180 million for Victor's big deal. But where did that money go next? Well, first, it was wired to Victor's bank account. Have I mentioned before that it's a Swiss bank account? Then it needed to get to Baku. And it got to Baku via a slightly more, shall we say, unorthodox route. There were these big suitcases. Oh, yeah. The money got to Baku in a suitcase. By now, Victor had also recruited his old college pal, Amir. We'll come to that soon enough. Anyway, Amir says he witnessed it all. I was uh, on the planes. I saw those suitcases of cash, 25 million bucks each. They open the suitcase and the smell of ink just takes over and you see the face of the $100 bill, 100,000 stacks. So the money's rolling in. Before long, Victor and his investors are going to own all the oil in Azerbaijan. And yeah, it might be Lee's money and Aaron's money and the other big shot's money. But where's the harm in spending some of the returns on that money? I mean, even if there haven't been any returns just yet, there are going to be returns, right? 
Now, we know Victor had a private jet. Of course he did. But Victor's private jet wasn't just any old private jet. He literally had his own bedroom. And Kathy Fleck should know because she says she was on that private jet. According to Kathy, when it came to bedtime, Victor would shut the door to his bedroom and sleep the sleep of the righteous. And in the morning? He would walk out and his suit would be perfectly pressed, his white starched shirt, his tie. He looked like he had had eight hours of sleep in an incredibly comfortable bed and he looked like a million dollars. A million dollars of other people's money. And what kind of places would Victor wake up in, fresh as a daisy in his private jet? Well, precisely the sort of places you'd expect. Monaco. Zero points for originality, Victor. And once Victor had arrived on his private jet, where would he go next? Victor had this really large boat. It was a yacht, needless to say. I think it was three decks and probably five really large staterooms. Beautiful. With a perfect view of the Grand Prix. On board, life was good. Life was easy. Because Victor and his guests didn't have to lift a finger. An attentive crew was on duty 24-7, catering to the guests' every whim. Morning, noon, and night. We just had this fantasy, you know, being in this otherworldly life. And once ashore, life was just as good. And life was just as easy. Victor would close entire stores so his guests could browse in peace. Come the evening, guests would be whisked straight into Monaco's premier night spots. We never stood in the line. We'd all just walk into the club. Lines are for losers. And after the club? You know, we'd get back from dancing at two, three, four in the morning. We'd start drinking more wine. He'd be smoking his cigar. And he'd say, I'm sure everyone's hungry. And he'd have someone go wake the chef up, make the chef get out of bed and start barbecuing steak and shrimp and lobster and pull out the caviar. And it was a never-ending party. But Victor was never in Monaco for long. He was constantly on the move, always with a huge entourage. He seemed to be a bit of a gregarious character, a bit of a showman. And the moment he landed, wherever he landed, Victor wanted everyone to know the Victor Kajani show was back in town. Colin Kamen worked with Victor in Baku. The show started with the landing of his aircraft at the airport. He demanded a security team, which was always over the top. A fleet of Mercedes-Benz, security in the front, security in the back. I didn't see the need for that. My dad used to say this, there's no deodorant like success. I gotta admit, I've never heard that one before. He's a successful man. He wants you to know it. I got it. Victor flaunted it, his connections and his influence in Azerbaijan. He basically held court with the adolescent jokes, you know, jokes that my 12-year-old son would tell, driveling on and on about his musings on the world. 
Holland found Victor OTT. But Victor's marks? They just seemed to hang on his every word. They couldn't get enough. Here were these people basically with their mouths open, just buying hook, line, and sinker what Victor was selling. His audience were lapping every morsel up like a starving dog. But even a traveling showman needs somewhere to call home. And for Victor, that place was the Bahamas. And by now, he truly was at home there with his third wife, Lutka, and their two daughters. Lutka was beautiful. She had a face to me like an angel. She had this skin that was milk-colored and these blue, blue, blue eyes and blonde hair. Maybe a little too blonde, but that's neither here nor there. And the children were these little dolls. They looked like their mother, and they dressed beautifully, and they were polite. It was almost like a fairy tale. Almost. But remember Lyford Key, also known as Lifeless Key? A place synonymous with stultifying boredom, pink trousers, and nautical-themed belts? There were plenty of types with money. And there were plenty of types with connections. But for Victor, the place lacked a certain je ne sais quoi. Victor yearned for more. He yearned for a place he could call his own. A place where he could really let his hair down. A place where he could do exactly whatever the hell he liked. Remember this? He goes to me, my name is Victor Cusini. I'm here to buy an island. And he bought that island. Hall's Pond Key. A miracle of marine life and fragile coral reefs. The sea life was just incredible. Any reef would have dozens of lobsters on it, schools of grouper and all the other fishes on it. There were hundreds of millions of conch, and they were all breeding millions and millions of eggs every year. This is Ray Darville. It is a lot more delicate than you can really explain. Ray patrolled the Exuma Keys National Marine Park, home to 365 islands, which Victor's Island just happened to be part of. It's a highly protected ecological preserve. Sounds like a dream job, eh, Ray? I used to have four to five attempts on my life every year. Yikes! Sounds more like a nightmare. I've been in a knife fight with two guys for four hours. You can't even imagine what that's like. Actually, Ray's one of the good guys. (laughs) He's the warden, a kind of cop on the beat for all the islands that make up this paradise. I enforce the rules. If you break the law in the park, Ray's coming after you. But Ray had a problem. A big problem. Victor was always doing crazy shit. Exactly what are you accusing Victor of, Ray? They cleared a path up onto the highest point on the island, and then they brought in a three-ton, life-size bronze rhino. Come again? A three-ton, life-size bronze rhino. A rhino? Have you ever heard of a rhino in the Bahamas? Didn't think so. Unbelievable. 
According to Ray, Victor was just getting started. The trouble with these beautiful, unspoiled, highly protected idols? Not enough roads, of course. Well, there's an easy fix for that. He had cut a bunch of horrific roads into the island. And if that wasn't bad enough, the moment it rained, Ray says the delicate, highly protected ecosystem just couldn't handle it. It looked like rivers coming off of that island, literally just pounding the beaches away. I'll be honest with you, the first time I saw it, I was, I I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, Victor, you got to be out of your mind. I said, the locals are going crazy. But it seems Victor didn't care what the locals thought. And he didn't care what the government thought about his new roads either. Big mistake. The prime minister wanted to come and see the island, and he wanted to confront Victor Cusini himself. He wanted to show Victor that he was serious. So the prime minister, he didn't turn up in any old boat. No, sir. He turned up in a gunboat. One of the Defense Force vessels, one of the 95-footers, 110 millimeter on the front and four stations for 50 caliber machine guns on it. It was quite a show of force. It looks like the locals had ratted Victor out to the government. It didn't matter whether Victor owned the island. The ecosystem was, yeah, highly protected under the law. And the Bahamian prime minister was not happy. He was just, just shocked. I don't know, it was a powerful scene. But no gunship was going to unbuild all those roads. All the government could do was stop Victor from building any more of them. Meanwhile, back in Baku... I've been waiting to say that the whole show. Yes, back in Baku. Victor's now taking the voucher-buying thing to a whole other level. There's buzz, there's hype, the vouchers are flooding in... And all those vouchers need to be processed. So Victor sets up a swanky new headquarters in the smartest part of town. I mean, really swanky. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. Banks of -of state-of-the-art computers. It looks like a Wall Street trading floor. It's a slick operation. And remember, this is Azerbaijan in the 1990s. This place looks space-age. And what does a swanky new headquarters need? A swanky opening, Joe. There had to have been hundreds of people there. Government officials, business people, diplomats, and all dressed very nicely. And it was a very beautiful event. The place was crawling with bigwigs. And the biggest bigwig of them all was one of the most respected bigwigs in Washington, George Mitchell. Tell us about this bigwig... I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I am not going to say bigwig four fucking times. Three bigwigs is my limit. So, Peter. Yes. Tell us more about George Mitchell. He was a leading Democratic politician, a federal judge, then a U.S. senator from Maine, then the Senate majority leader until the mid-1990s. Basically... He's a great American statesman. 
Yeah, he, he really was. He's the man who brokered peace in Northern Ireland, and he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for it. Wow. And you'll love this, Joe. Victor flew Mitchell to Ireland on his private jet. <laughs> L-O-L. Yes. Victor later told me, it was my little contribution to the peace process. Double L-O-L. So how on earth did George Mitchell get involved with Victor? Remember Rick Burke? The luxury handbags guy? How can I forget? Yeah. Well, it, it was Burke, who was a good friend, who introduced George Mitchell to Victor. Aha. Uh-huh. Victor did his usual thing. Let me guess, let me guess. Expensive food, fine wine, Chateau Petrus. Yes, they they dined at some fancy place in London, and a short time afterward, Mitchell decided he wanted in the deal, and right away. There's something about those fancy dinners. That was Victor's M.O., and it worked. Mitchell is very important to Victor's grand plan. In fact... He was probably the most important person of all. And it was Mitchell who gave the keynote speech. He talked about, you know, how we were all excited about the possibilities and how this would help modernize Azerbaijan. So Mitchell invested. He put in $200,000. Peanuts. But Mitchell's involvement brought something else. Something way more valuable to Victor something you can't put a price tag on. He was a very important person in the U.S., and here he was in this deal. So it lent a air of credibility to the whole thing. $200,000 by George Mitchell was probably a more significant investment than all my investors' money. He had a reputation of being a very ethical person. With the speeches done and the ribbon cut, Victor's brand-new headquarters was open for business. For all the glitz and glamour, all the hype and the buzz, the key to Victor's grand plan was far more mundane. Paper. Lots of little bits of paper. Vouchers. There were vouchers to be bought, and then, once bought, there were vouchers to be processed. And on one floor... There were, I don't know how many women counting vouchers. Counting vouchers by hand? It looked to me that it could have been in the millions. Oy, oy, oy. And all those bits of paper needed to be kept somewhere. But they couldn't be kept just anywhere. Because sure, individually, on their own, these little bits of paper weren't worth a whole lot. But collectively... If everything went according to plan, they were going to pay for something almost unfathomable. The entire oil industry of Azerbaijan. And that made them very, very valuable. And where do you keep your valuables? In a vault, of course. And Victor's vault was right at the top of the building, well away from prying eyes. Colin Kamen once spent a few hours inside the vault, counting vouchers by hand. Tedious stuff. I couldn't believe we didn't have a counting machine. Okay, so no counting machine. But otherwise, the vault was killing it. Three-inch armored plates were put in all the windows. Bars on the door. Russian guards inside. And they were all armed. Quite impressive for anybody visiting. 
like your wealthy American investor. Wealthy American investors like Kathy Fleck. I remember it being dark and I remember it being very cold. And this giant thick door with the combination. And inside, of course, we had floor to ceiling vouchers, hundreds of thousands of vouchers, millions of vouchers. Victor might have his swanky new headquarters with its super secure vault, but there's one thing that's causing a bit of a headache. The weight of it all. Uh oh. I don't know whether the floor was reinforced, but it was a serious worry that it would go right through the floor down to the ground floor. Once it got going, there would be nothing to stop it. It would have killed people for sure. Death by voucher? Ugh, that's not how I want to go. By now, Victor's whole operation was bursting at the seams. He was going to need a bigger vault. And he was going to need more people. People that he could trust. People he had a history with. People like his old college pal, Amir Farman Pharma. I was at a wedding in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence when this fax came in. A fax machine at a wedding? Ah, okay, go on. It was kind of a dynasty-type wedding. Posh, rich French people. Yeah, I know the type. I was always more of a Dallas fan myself. Anyway, the facts. Of course it was from Victor. And um, he was recruiting. The following day, we flew on his Challenger 601 straight to uh, Baku Airport. Victor promises Amir something pretty special in his Baku operation. And Amir assumes he'll have a seat at the table. After all, they go way back. Harvard, the speed club. Remember the tidy whities behind the liquor cabinet? Victor and Amir, they had history. And Victor offers Amir a job that Amir thinks is a partnership. But it's a big step. It means moving to Baku. And Baku, well, it's not exactly Saint-Ramita, Provence. So Amir needs to mull it over. In fact, he needs to do more than mull. He needs to meditate. I remember consulting the I Ching at the time, the Chinese Book of Changes. I got hexagram 33, retreat. Retreat? Go on. Stillness, mountain, under the light of day, Heaven forms a condition for retreat. An enlightened person, therefore, keeps his distance from mean-spirited persons. He must prepare to retreat from a rising darkness that will work at cross-purposes with your aims. The mean-spirited person are likely to succeed in attracting the superior man. They have stepped on your tail. Ouch! It sounds to me, Amir, as if three millennia of Chinese wisdom is telling you not to take the job. So, uh, what did you do? There was the hundred grand on the table, and so I went. So, it turns out it wasn't about the I Ching, it was about the, uh, Ka Ching. <laughs> 
Amir had barely touched down in Azerbaijan before he started to regret his decision. Because Baku is not exactly San Ramita, Provence. Stayed in a pit of an apartment in Baku with brown water and uh, no electricity. And that wasn't the worst of it. When Victor first offered him the job, Amir imagined himself as Victor's right-hand man, his chief lieutenant, his confidant, his equal, right? Uh, wrong. I thought we were going to go into some kind of partnership, but before I knew it, I was reporting to somebody who was reporting to him and uh, sitting on a sales desk. Not exactly a seat at the table. So guess what Amir did? This time I got hexagam 36. Ming, the darkening of the light. Here the sun has sunken under the earth and is therefore darkened. Oh my, that sounds even worse. A man of dark nature is in a position of authority and brings harm to the wise and able man. Holy moly. One ought not to fall in with the practices of others. Oh my goodness. So here the dark forces were ascendant. Uh, I'd entered into that realm. And uh, Victor was in control. All very sinister. But was Victor in control? Well, there was a problem. You'll recall Victor's team, the Russians, who'd been fanning out across Baku? When Victor started buying, he used his Russians to go out and buy on the street. Train stations, bus stations, tram stops, buying vouchers from regular people. But that wasn't going to fly anymore. Things were getting sticky. Victor's team, they were driving around with a lot of cash. One of the Russians got surrounded by the cops. It was a negotiation. Colin heard the government had gotten wind of Victor's plan. And according to Victor, they made it clear, from now on, you deal with us. You buy the vouchers from us. You can't buy from the street anymore. You now have to buy from the State Privatization Committee. Buy from the who? The State Privatization Committee of Azerbaijan. They were the ones who were in charge. The State Privatization Committee, huh? And it seems this had been decided at the highest levels. Victor had said that that order came from the top, meaning the president of the country. No problem, Victor says. I'm flexible, all cool. Seems Victor starts saying all the right things to all the right people. The guys at the government's state privatization committee take quite a shine to Victor. And things are looking good. They seem very happy. In fact, they're so happy that after that swanky opening of Victor's swanky new office, they invite Victor and company for a night of traditional Azeri hospitality. What's not to like? It was, I don't know, 20, 30 miles out of town. I think we got there at midnight to sit down for dinner. I never saw a spread like it. One man was a manufacturer of carpets. He claimed he was the president's best friend. They went to school together. They were gifts. Bet you can't guess what they were. He gave us carpets. These 
small Persian-style rugs. I think they said he was the wealthiest man in Azerbaijan. There were speeches. They praised the president and they praised the Americans. Everyone gave a speech telling dirty jokes which the women didn't like. Speech after speech praising the Americans. And the guest of honor? Guess who that was? George Mitchell was there too. And he had met with the president that day. That's according to Aaron's recollection anyway. Told you things were looking good. What does the I Ching know anyway? And here's the real ace in the hole. It looks like the sale of the oil company to Victor. It's a done deal. Aaron says George Mitchell is in no doubt. He was told by Aliyev three times that they were going to privatize. He says the papers was on his desk to sign. With the president's fountain pen hovering over the dotted line, the deal is oh so close. Tantalizingly close. This was going to be a success. We're going to make some money here. This is cutting-edge stuff. This is an adventure. We were at the beginning of a new dawn. With just one flourish of that pen, every drop of Azeri oil will belong to Victor and his investors. Every last drop. What could possibly go wrong? Hexagram 36. A man of dark nature is in a position of authority and brings harm to the wise and able man. Here the sun has sunken under the earth and is therefore darkened. So here the dark forces were ascendant. listening to The Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast produced by Blanchard House and hosted by me, Joe Nocera. The producer is Ben Crichton. The associate producer is Peter Elkind. The writers are Lawrence Grizel, Ben Crichton, and me, Joe Nocera. Music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nank Minnell, and Toby Matamon. Sound design and engineering by Vulcan Kizeltug. Our managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The executive producer and head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. <laughs>